Hello, and welcome back to the Glossy Week in Review podcast. I'm your host, senior fashion reporter, Danny Parisi, and I'm here with my co-host, our editor-in-chief, Jill Manoff. How are you, Jill? Happy to be back. Hey, Danny. I'm good. How are you? I'm doing very well. We have an exciting episode. We're going to be talking a little bit about some of the big fast fashion brands like H&M and Inditex, which owns Zara, uh, both of which had earnings this week, kind of went in totally different directions between the two of them. So we'll talk about what's happening there. Um, Then we're going to talk Oscars, which were not quite as exciting as last year's just because nobody got slapped. But um, there was a lot of interesting clothing and a lot to talk about there in in terms of what the brands are doing. And then finally, we'll talk about the, the big old mess that is the Silicon Valley bank collapse and how that affects fashion brands both directly and kind of just indirectly. Um, due to the effects throughout, you know, the financial sector. So, but let's start with H&M and Inditex. So, like I said, they both companies put out earnings this week, um, and they kind of were just in, you know, had totally different results. H&M sales were up, but just by a very tiny bit, like 3%, um, and Inditex had their sales go up by like 13.5% or or 18%, depending on what you're looking at. I think their profits were up 18% and sales were up 13%, something like that. Either way, they definitely a split growing there. And I'm not sure exactly what to attribute it to. I always think of H&M as a little bit more on the cheap, fast side of the of the fast fashion world and Inditex and Zara a little bit on the higher quality side. I, I don't know. Do you feel that way too? I, that's how I've always kind of viewed those two companies. I do think that, yes, and Zara actually under their umbrella, or Inditex under their umbrella, um, has a little bit of a higher end brand um, that more specializes in workwear that actually is um, not performing well. And so there's talk across the industry, of course, of focusing on the cheap of the cheap or more luxury and some of these kind of middle ground. It's tough. You would think that H&M would be performing based on that, on that um, theory. So um, yeah, a couple things at play, I think, you know, innovation on the Zara front and we can get into all of that, but um, definitely what they talked about were things that were forward moving. I feel like um, they're moving fast. They had something and I was telling Zofia on our team to write about it. it. It's definitely a tech forward something. You've gone to Zara in New York or in even when I was in Paris and the lines are bananas. Um, you, you have to put in a good hour and a half to wait in line at the fitting room and the um, register like in total for a visit a good over an hour if you want to try on. Um, but anyway, in terms of checkout, they're, in, they're launching something where those hard security tags that are taking forever to remove one by one by one. Um, there's going to be something built into the clothes. Maybe it will be scanned, um, but that will remove, I think they said 50% of the the checkout time, which anyway, they're doing things to <laughs> revenue-driven moves that are built on innovation. Um, various, we can dig in, but various also, um, they're opening stores in U.S. Their stockholders didn't love that stock. They, that... Um, their stock plummeted a bit or it didn't plummet. It declined a bit. Um, but that had to do with the fact that um, they pulled out of Russia. That was their second largest yeah. um, market. And now U.S. is the second largest. It only has you're, what? You're talking about Inditex? I'm sorry. Yes. Yes. It only has 500. No, 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 no. It had 500 stores in Russia. Um, mm-hmm. U.S. only has 100 
compared mm. to its number one market of 1,200 stores in Spain. Fact of the matter is, mm. it's making in smart investments. It's moving forward. Um, to me, they're doing all the right things. And to me, yeah. Yeah. from my point of view, I shop more at Zara. The quality is better in my point of view. Yes. Yeah, definitely. Um, I mean, so two things. One, on the topic of those hard tags, I remember one time, I think it was a glossy event years ago, I bought a suit the day before, like a new outfit, and they did, forgot to take off the hard tag, and I did not know until the next morning, and I put it on and just had to wear it with the tag on the pants the whole time um, and then bring it back later. Anyway, uh, but also, so it's interesting because H&M said that a big part of the reason their earnings were not so good was also because of pulling out of Russia. And I think H&M just had a much, well, I don't know. I mean, because you, you, like you said, Inditex had a pretty significant presence in Russia, but so did H&M. So I don't know why that hit them so much harder. Um, I do think that because of you know what we were saying, H&M is a little bit on the lower end side, um, a little more inexpensive, maybe that they are more vulnerable to Shein, which I feel like is somebody we got to talk about in this conversation. They're so huge and so, um, you know, they utterly dominate the the bottom end of fast fashion where you can buy things for like 50 cents. Um, and I don't know if H&M can really keep up with that or if they don't want to. And they've got the large retail footprint that, that Shein doesn't have paying for all these mm-hmm. stores. Go ahead. Yeah, exactly. No. And and in H&M's report, they talked about how a, th- a threat, it's kind of funny that they framed it this way, but they were saying, uh, you know, a threat to them, to H&M, is people wanting more sustainability and more transparency. And they were basically like, if customers keep wanting that, like that might impact our sales. And so they, you know, they're they're working with ThreadUp, they're doing resale, they want to do more sustainability stuff to kind of capture that customer. And it's funny to me because she and I mean, Shein does resale and they kind of, you know, do lip service to sustainability, but they're the most unsustainable, most blatantly, you know, cheap, like trash fashion imaginable. And they're hugely popular. So it kind of, I think we've talked about this a couple of times, but it kind of uh, calls into question that whole narrative of like customers, especially young people, like really want sustainability. I'm like, do they? Because they're buying mountains of clothing from Shein, which is just like made straight out of gasoline or something. Yes, you're so right. And Zara also has a pre-owned service. They're doing more things. You can resell, you can donate, you can have it repaired, which Zofia and our team just wrote about um, Uniqlo doing repairs, which is interesting. Um, there's a critical point of view out there, which I agree with. Like you need to also be pairing that with, we're now offering resale. Um, at the same time, we're pulling back on product production. This is going to kind of balance the two worlds. There's no pullback of production. It's just like, yes, kind of putting, (laughs) trying to throw something sexy on top of what you're already doing. And that maybe won't be the most impactful. Zara um, has better margins. They did increase their prices. Um, H&M did as well, but uh, their margin, anyway, Zara is transferring some of the costs, more of the costs to the customer. um, And that's working. So for H&M to raise prices, maybe that, that I guess, budget conscious shopper isn't taking to it. it could be a threat as well. Yeah. I wonder, do you think that, could you, could you imagine H&M halting everything or, or redo, like redoing their entire business model and kind of not being fast fashion anymore? Is that even possible for a company that big? Or is the, 
sort of the treadmill is moving too fast. Like I, I, they can they can do resale, they can try to make more sustainable stuff, but can they? I wonder if it's even possible for them to reduce the amount of clothing that they're making and and switch to being you know sort of a more middle of the market fashion brand instead of just this ultra fast place. Like, do you, do you think they could even do that with the size that they are? It's interesting. I think they have to re, they have to pivot their idea of fast fashion where, I mean, first of all, like clean up your, is it, is it just about wastefulness or is, do they have, have they got, you know, a dirty, <laughs> dirty supply chain, things are happening that are, they're getting backlash on. I think it's, um, combination but i also think that the zara shopper that is shopping h&m me um i just assume they've got this higher end collection in there i think it's called i don't know if it's called the conscious collection and i know that that conscious collection gets a lot of backlash about not really being conscious fact of the matter is it's better stuff and it is more expensive it's like a blouse for 80 dollars. like that's zara prices um and that's really the first like they've got maybe one to two they've got a little section there in store that's always what i go to i kind of ignore the rest um so i think that they probably have two different shoppers going um which obviously a large majority of their inventory is cheaper faster throwaway mm. stuff so you're right it, it would be a big <laughs> ship to turn um yeah or, yeah i think they're gonna struggle in that way yeah yeah and, and i think of other brands that have tried to make sort of a, a transformation and and enter kind of a different price bracket like uh people always talk about how j crew kind of went that direction you know years ago and how that and tried to be more expensive and you know and that kind of did not work out for them so yeah, I, I don't know if H and M could really do that. If I were in charge of this company, I I don't even know what direction I would go. Like if I was just trying to uh, make more money, I, I I'm not sure. Um, if I just wanted to be better for the environment, I know what I'd do. But if I was like trying to run this big successful business, I'm I'm not sure what the right direction is for them. Um, but it is interesting. I mean, every every conversation about fast fashion to me now, I feel like Shein is like the bedrock under it all where it's like nobody is cheaper or faster and so all the others kind of just don't know what to do and they are trying to cut costs like the in november h&m announced laying off 1500 members of the staff that's right um and other ways to cut the soaring costs so um they're actively (laughs) actively looking at it they're they're no fools but um yeah we'll see yeah let's talk about the oscars a little bit now too um so there's there's a lot to say. One of the first things I wanted to bring up was just there was a lot of um, you know classic brand and celebrity pairings like Lady Gaga wore Versace. She wears Versace a lot, um, and I think she wore something straight from the runway. They had a show like three days before, and the dress that she wore was from that show. Um, Jennifer Connelly wore Louis Vuitton, etc. Um, but uh, the New York Times had an interesting article where they talked about how some of those some of the the actors or the celebrities who were there wore pieces from a brand that were customized just for that night. Um, so Harry Shum Jr. wore a white, uh, like, ADM dinner jacket, um, but with this custom-made kind of obi like, sash around the waist, um, which they had made special for him just for that night, which I thought was very cool. And Hong Chow, who was uh, nominated for The Whale, wore a Prada gown, but she also had had Prada add, like, a 
pink mandarin collar to it that does not come on that dress normally and it was kind of added just for that and i'm sure that's a common practice but i thought that was just interesting that the pieces are similar to what you could just buy straight off the rack but you know changed in little ways just for the night I love that. And it's kind of a play off of what we've been seeing in seasons past, um, award shows past, um, with uh, celebrities and models and such wearing vintage and having it kind of updated um, for their body, for modern times. Um, yeah, I like that customization. Um, and good mention on, G- on um, ah Lady Gaga, because... Mm-hmm. I feel like what everybody talks about or, you know, what every brand is gunning for is kind of a moment um, to stand out in yeah. this noisy time. And I feel like one that did that to some extent um, because there were adjacent events that they held was Versace um, because, you know, Thursday prior to the award show, they held a fashion show in LA for mm-hmm. the first time maybe ever, or at least in many, many years. Um, and it was originally supposed to be held on Friday. They moved it to Thursday because of like rain in the forecast or something. To oh that yeah, night. rain. Yeah, very last minute. And everybody turned out no matter, even so. It was like Elton John, Pamela Anderson, Jeff Bezos, like every, <laughs> every, he, like it, A-lister across the board. So um that was interesting. That got a lot of buzz for the celebrity factor. Um, and then they tied that to the awards with, with yes, looks worn directly off the runway, worn on Gigi Hadid at the fashion show, biggest model of the time, basically one of them, and then were worn by one of the biggest celebs, um, Lady Gaga. So that was a moment, and that was um, exciting. I think that that was a good kind of tying together with a bow of of these different marketing plays. Yeah, good good synergy there. Um, I also saw, I, I noticed some you know, people talking about this, and I even just noticed from watching myself, a lot of white, um, white dresses. I saw people calling it like the bridal trend or like a wedding dress trend. Definitely a lot of things that easily could have been uh, wedding dresses. I personally really loved Michelle Yeoh's white kind of, puffy dress, which I thought looked really nice. Um, and I think that goes for the menswear too. My my favorite menswear look was Paul Meskel um, from After Sun, who had this very cool kind of long white dinner jacket and black kind of bell-bottomy, you know, flowing loose pants. Some people on the glossy team, I won't say who, did not like his look, but I liked it a lot. Did they call him a waiter or something? I thought he looked sharp too. I liked it. I thought, yeah, I thought it looked really classy and kind of 70s, which we talk about a lot is, you know, such a big visual reference point for a lot of fashion right now. Um, It's just that whole decade. So anyway, I saw a lot of white out there. Um, Maybe it's just on my mind because I just wrote a story about weddings um, and bridal fashion and all that. But I wonder if there's any connection. going to get married soon. Sorry to throw that in there. Okay, go ahead. I I am. I'm I'm currently planning a wedding and procrastinating as much as possible. Um, But (laughs) maybe just because it's on my mind, I'm wondering if all the white is... I don't know, has anything to do with the huge boom in weddings in the U.S. Last year, there was like way more than usual in 2022. And now it's kind of settling back down to a normal amount of weddings um, in 2023. I don't know what's what's causing that, but I definitely notice a ton of white dresses, which I guess you don't usually see at events like this. 
Yeah, you're not kidding. There was there was a lot of white. A good point. I didn't think of that. Um, who was it? Hunter Schaefer wore white at the Vanity Fair red carpet, which was like, we have to get into Law Roach because he styled that, which we will. But um, to me, obviously, the young hot things are invited to Vanity Fair. <laughs> and they're, mm-hmm. it's a little bit, you know, less buttoned up than I guess the Oscars red carpet. You can have a little more fun. That's like, it's, it's, I don't know, competing <laughs> that that Vanity Fair red carpet is way more fun to me. And um, there were some exciting looks um, a lot. So I, did Law Roach, I don't know if he styled anything on the main red carpet. And maybe that has to do with his yeah, I'm not right sure. now. <laughs> he was definitely heavily represented on the Vanity Fair red carpet. Um, mm-hmm. But that was really fun. Um, and I also noticed we're, we're talking about this more in uh, on, at Fashion Weeks with with. Um, skincare being more represented. We got a lot of pitches and I saw a lot of um, social buzz about the skincare that that celebrities were using. <laughs> um, it wasn't just makeup and beauty looks, but the skincare, which to me, I'll take a critical look like, okay, they use this moisturizer that day. Like, what does it mean? We know skincare mm-hmm. is a lifelong commitment. <laughs> So, like, is this what they use all the time? I don't know. But um, anyway, yeah. a lot more representation across beauty or I guess um, tacking, tapping into this opportunity across the beauty um, side of things, which is definitely in our world, too. Yeah. And something in my world that I was paying a lot of attention to were the watches, um, which I feel like sometimes go a little bit. Uh, I mean, I, I think if you're an enthusiast and you're risk checking everybody, then you probably notice. But I think in general, it's kind of a subtle, um, you know, addition to the outfit, especially if somebody's up on stage, it's kind of hard to tell exactly what they're wearing. So, but there are many, many sites of, you know, with obsessive people who will catalog every single watch worn to these events. And I was looking through a lot of them and there was, uh, at least for the men, a ton of Omega watches or Omega, um, Brandon Fra- both of the male like actor winners, Brandon Fraser and Kei Hui Kwan, both were wearing Omega. I think they both wore Speedmasters. Um, there was a lot of Cartier, both no, on no, men no. and women. Kei Hui Kwan um, wore Globemaster. Oh, he wore Globemaster. Okay. Well, there was still a ton of Omegas. There was, I think, only one Rolex that I saw. Um, I'm forgetting who it was. Somebody had it. Um, but a lot of Cartier on both men and women, which I thought was interesting. Um, I think Andrew Garfield wore Cartier. Um, somebody else. Paul Mescal. Paul Mescal, yes. Did he wear a tank? He did. I think that, yes. Yeah, so I feel like Cartier and Omega, to me, seemed like the two most prominent. Um, although, I got to say, Michelle Yeoh wore this insane-looking watch from, I think, Richard Mill that was so diamond-encrusted, it looked ridiculous. Um, not in a bad way. But uh, that was the only watch from that brand that I saw there, but it was definitely a stunner. It was so good. I know. Jamie Lee Curtis wore a watch. I love the watches on the women. On women, I think that that's a really fun take. Who else did? Where I was like, that is sharp. Oh, that wasn't. This was <laughs> this was a talk show the other night. Never mind. Jenna Lyons wore a great <laughs> watch on a talk show the other night. Um, what was I going to say? Um, Alaria Benati. Um, I've talked to her before for stories for glossy and have since started following her on Instagram. I feel like she's the like unofficial menswear stylist um of our time. She styled seven men for the red carpet for the Oscars um oh, wow. including the rock in this 
custom, as you said, um, D&G. She called mm-hmm. it ballet pink um, satin blazer. Um, which yes. Is, it was a statement. Wow, it does. It literally looks like it's made out of a ballet flat. It really does. So that was striking. And man, I feel like she has made, which he wore this, um, I think it was McQueen. It almost looked like a onesie. I don't know if it was. Um, D- D- Donald Glover. Like, she is making him into a style icon. He's got these, like, he looks sharp oh, yeah. 24-7. Like, I love everything he wears. And that's all. I mean, I don't think it's all her. I'm sure it's a collab with Donald. Um, But, yeah, she's doing some great things. So I thought she was, I think she's one yeah. to watch for sure. And she's, um, and her guys, they all had a great watch on. That's for sure. Yeah. Um, and then one other thing we should talk about was the, the viewership at the Oscars. Um, we talked last year uh, about how, Obviously, uh, 2021 Oscars, I think, was the lowest they've ever had. It was like 10 million viewers. Before that, it had never been below, I think, 30. Um, And so it was really, really down in 2021. And then 2022, it kind of came back a little bit, definitely boosted by the slap. Um, And then this year, I'm sure as a relief to the Academy, it was up again. Um, Not a ton. I think it went to 16 million last year and then 18 million this year. But still, that's an upward trajectory and nobody got slapped this time. So that's, I I think it's more than just a fluke from last year. Uh, And the reason I bring that up is because I often wonder with with these events that um, are maybe on the decline, especially in 2021, it's like, is it worth it for these brands to put a lot of money into these events or into the promotion, promoting them and doing marketing around it if they're declining. And I think the fact that it's not declining, it's definitely diminished, but so many things are diminished, you know, since the pandemic, um, but not diminished as much maybe as people feared. So maybe that is, you know, a good justification to keep, you know, putting stuff into it. Yeah. And I think, I mean, I wasn't even thinking in these terms, but doing something like Versace where people are actually like talking about the brand and not the look, um, and tying it to a runway or something is really smart because, you know, gone are the days. To me, I want to say for better or for worse, I kind of, I'm snarky. I kind of liked it. I feel like lighten up everyone. We don't do so much as like, what are you wearing? Best and worst dressed as we used to do, um, where it was more focused on designer. Like that is out. And now we're asking, I don't know, political questions, <laughs> things about people's, mm-hmm. uh, questions about people's artistry they're they're acting which is all great too but like that gone are the days who are you wearing that's like i feel like um interviewers get backlash if that's what they go in with um which is i i there's something to be said for that but it's not so much focus on on the designer itself so to get that name in there is important and i'm sure a struggle now yeah i i mean i think especially that question um is I think frowned upon is because it was almost always would be women getting asked that and never men. And uh, I do think it's interesting. I feel like men now are probably much more open to like probably get asked that more and are more open to answering that question and actually know the answer to it. And maybe decades ago, they would be like, I don't know, whatever my stylist gave me. Oh, um, let's bring it back. Equal opportunity. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I feel like women have been asked that less on the, on the run or not on the run on the red carpet. Oh, that's another thing. It wasn't a red carpet this year. It was a champagne carpet, which I really liked the color. I thought that was nice. That is um, nice. And good. I literally forgot the slab. That was last year. You keep bringing it up. That's so interesting. And I was seeing Chris Rock in my feed and I didn't really connect the dots. <laughs> Yeah. 
Okay, anything else you want to say about the Oscars before we move on? No, but uh, Law Roach has announced his retirement. We have to mention that. And um, yeah. everybody's questioning if it had to do with something that happened at the Oscars, something that happened between um, him and his very, like, I guess, main client, Zendaya. Um, he has come out and said, no, 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 no. <laughs> Zendaya's my girl. That is not the issue. Um, mm-hmm. So, you know, no, it's TBD. If there's questioning, is this just drama? Is he really retired? Um He's always had an active presence on the red carpet in recent years, we'll say that. Um, So I feel like that would be a miss. I tend to, I don't put many red carpet photos in like my Instagram stories. It's like always one that I'm like, go Law Roach. And he's been so kind to Glossy and talk to us a lot. So anyway, I hope hope it's not true. I hope he's bluffing. So maybe by next week, we'll have a little more information. Maybe we can talk about it more. Um, But let's talk a little bit about the Silicon Valley bank situation, which um, by this point, I think seems somewhat under control. Um, But basically over the last week, Silicon Valley Bank, which is a big financial institution, works with, worked with tons of venture capital, startup companies, a lot of fashion, but also a lot of tech and and other things. Um, They had a bank run, meaning everyone tried to withdraw their money at the same time and collapsed. Um, It probably could have been a lot worse. Uh, The government stepped in and took over the bank and, you know, promised that everyone is going to get their deposits if they wanted it. Um, And there was a lot of talk early on, is this going to cause a ripple effect and a huge financial crisis? And I think it's looking a little less likely at the moment, again, on Thursday morning. So if there is a financial crisis tomorrow, I didn't know. This is Thursday. Um, But but the bulk of the worry, I think, over SVB kind of falling apart um, was in the tech world, because like I said, a lot of tech and startup-y kind of companies worked with them. Um, But tech and fashion are very intertwined, and SVB worked with a lot of big fashion companies like Stitch Fix, and then indirectly, their, their collapse had an impact on all sorts of public fashion companies that we could see from their stock, like Abercrombie, Nordstrom, Allbirds, all had their stocks go down right after um, the SVB collapse, including a bunch of other retailers that are not necessarily fashion-related. So I think it kind of just rippled out through the whole sort of business world. Um, what were your What were your thoughts on that, Joe, based on, on what we've seen? I know neither of us are necessarily banking or finance experts, but um, we are sort of fashion experts, so. Yes. Um, it was, I, I learned a lot reading um, Liz Flora and our team's story earlier in the week. She connected with a lot of beauty brands um, who were talking about this, showing concern on social media. Um, you know, everything's transparent now. A lot of um, brand founders were going on TikTok and going, oh, great. I couldn't get out my money on time. Some brands that banked with SVB, um, Thursday, you know, went, tried to get their money out and maybe um, didn't make the transfer cutoff and were like, oh, crap, what do I do now? Melanie Travis in our world, more on the fashion side, founder of Andy Swim, um, you know, she she just had an Instagram. She made light of it. It was after the fact, but she's just like some photos from before my bank collapsed. So it's just like a lot of the direct-to-consumer startup companies um, banked there or had like you said, um, concerned about the ripple effects if a tech company, Shopify, um, is is intertwi- intertwined with this bank. So um, the move, first of all, it's wild. 
Like it reminds me of a scene from It's a Wonderful Life and everybody's like, get your money out. <laughs> like anyway, it's mm-hmm. crazy. And also it calls into question, yeah. like if more traditional banks are at risk, I mean, you'd are you really investing in something like crypto right now? <laughs> like this is crazy. Yeah. Like it, I think it has big implications for other trends in the industry. Um, first of all, but go ahead. Yeah, no, I, I think the same thing. I mean, um, Wait, I, I had a thought a second ago, and I, I got distracted by thinking it's a wonderful life. That's okay. So I think that the the brand the brand response we're gonna see from now is either like a oh. diversification of funds because mm-hmm. um you're insured for two hundred and fifty thousand dollars. You're you're guaranteed mm-hmm. insured. So if a bank, if you have that much money in a bank, that's what. You, if you have more, you're kind of screwed. That was the old. Mm-hmm. That was the theory. Government's yeah. covering it, you know, everybody's okay. Um, so yeah. either diversification of funds up to 250000 and or move to a larger, less at-risk bank, more established. Yeah. They may not have the same perks, but at least you're not going to lose all your money. <laughs> yeah. So I, I, the first I heard of this, the bank collapse, was because my fiancé had informed me that there's this uh, company called Camp, camp.com. It's like, and they, they're not quite fashion, but they sell what like accessories or I'm not sure. Is it more kids that can? I think it's like kids and like toys and stuff anyway, but they had a sale on their site and it was like a big pop-up that was like, our bank is collapsing. Everything's 50% off or whatever. I was like, that's bizarre. And then I, you know, over the next day I realized everyone's bank was collapsing because so many people used that same bank. I just thought it was funny that this brand had kind of capitalized on it that way. Um, but I was going to say, uh, to your point about crypto and stuff, I mean, um, there was, I think there was a New York Times article where they, uh, or no, I think it was Women's Wear, actually, they, or they quoted somebody saying, um, consumers are tired of financial crises all the time, you know, or already have inflation, things are already so expensive. And then on top of that, it's like banks are collapsing and like crypto is falling apart and all this stuff. And people are just like, I don't want to deal with like risk anymore. Like, I don't want everything to be a gamble. But part of the reason why I was skeptical of NFTs from the beginning is because they're so they're they're gambling basically. And I was like, do people want to play fast and loose with their money right now? I don't think so. I don't want to. Um, and I think also that will have an effect maybe on spending. People are already spending less because of inflation and because things are expensive. And now on top of that, there's like a potential financial crisis every couple months. Uh, you know, FTX falling apart, SVB falling apart. Um, I don't know if it were me, which it is because I'm a consumer, too. I don't want to be, you know, being risky and, you know, buying a bunch of handbags or watches or whatever, even though I buy watches all the time. Anyway, um, I do think that's going to have an impact on the consumer side. And then on the business side, we've we've talked about this a bunch, but uh, Silicon Valley Bank was definitely one of those financial institutions that was very willing to work with startup companies that would not make money for like five or six years or more. Um, And I think that era was already kind of going away, but with SVB collapsing, like if you're going from working with Silicon Valley Bank and then having to go work with Bank of America or somebody, I feel like they're going to be way less likely to be all right with you burning money for 10 years or something. Um, And we've heard the same thing from the venture capital world where a lot of the investors are less willing to, you know, fund a company that has no path to profitability or won't be profitable for a super long time. And that's why you're seeing a lot of companies like The Real Real, for example, kind of 
frantically trying to get to profitability because I think they're probably feeling that sense that you can't just be losing money for forever now. You need to you need to start making money. I mean, on a side note, I just came back from South by Southwest, and this was a little yeah. bit of a conversation in that companies like Poshmark that I spoke to on the stage, um, we were talking about different um, plays, for instance, like ThreadUp offering resale as a service. Poshmark, you don't do that. Anyway, they talked a lot about, and this came up in several conversations, really like staying in their lane, not looking at what everyone else is doing, doing what they do best and improving on it and advancing on it. And there was talk about the pandemic and um, state of the economy and the bank crumbling. And, um, you know, at this point, you can't really plan or you can't intentionally avoid risk because all of these really almost like unheard of things are happening. And so they're just, it's almost like a a safeguarding. That's a way to safeguard is to not, yes, like you were talking about NFTs, like let's not play around, (laughs) like, like let's just do what we do best. Um, so something there and I'll be writing about this in my briefing this week. So check it out. Yes. And you mentioned earlier that, uh, our colleague Liz Flora wrote a great story, um, explaining some of the impact on beauty. Um, we will definitely probably be covering more of this uh, in the future. But I think that's all the time we have for this week. Jill, it is always so good having these conversations with you. Thank you for joining us. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. Um, For those of you listening, don't forget to give us a rating and a review, whether that's Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you're listening to this, that helps us out a ton. Um, And also don't forget to subscribe to the Glossy Podcast because every Friday I do the weekend review either with Jill or sometimes with Sophia or other members of the team. And then every Wednesday, Jill or I will be interviewing some interesting industry insider. That is always a tongue twister every time I say interesting industry insider. Jill, who's on our next episode of the Glossy Podcast? Who's our guest? It's such a good one. It's such a long one, but such a valuable conversation. Speaking to our conversation on watches and timepieces, I have Jeffrey Fowler, formerly of Farfetch, now at Hodinkee. Hodinkee? (laughs) Oh, yes. Oh, my gosh. He's so smart. We go deep on all the things, including um, watches and uh, the knowledgeable experts in his world. And he is such an expert and has an amazing collection. And it's so fun. And I have to give a shout out, crossover to our Glossy Beauty podcast. If you're so interested, we had our first first um, pop edition of the Glossy Beauty podcast go live this week uh, featuring Vanessa Hudgens. And it's such a fun conversation with Sarah Brookfinder. So check that out. Yes. And Sarah did such a great job and it's a great conversation. So if you're enjoying the Glossy Week in Review podcast, definitely go listen to the Glossy Beauty podcast as well. Um, well, like I said, that's all the time we have. Thank you, Jill. And thank you for listening. <laughs>